Natalia Gervais in the 1970s, and then in the 80s, retransitioned to Brian. Um, and his journey as a gender outlier, is, which is how your book describes you, is sort of at the heart of, of, of this story. But along the way, there have been many, many, many nightclubs and disco people and famous people that the, we're all going to touch on right here. But right off the bat, I want to clear some things up. Um, when I'm referring to my memories of you in the 80s and the stories about you in the 70s, I can refer to Tish. Am I correct? Oh, of course. Okay. I can talk about Tish and Natalia. And oh, then yeah. you don't you don't need to be Brian all the way through. Oh God, no, I'm not that good. Okay. And <laughs> and um and Tish's pronouns are her, she, and yours are, yeah. are he, him. Yes. Yes. Or whatever, or you know. Or they Miss them thing. or Miss or, thing. or you'll use or, Miss Thing all the way through. <laughs> you are missing. I I've been known to answer to everything. <laughs> well, good. I just wanted to make sure. I wanted to well, thank you for asking. That's very kind and very um, woke. Very. We we are nothing but woke here at World of Wonder. Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. You know your book starts, and I want to sort of plop us back into that time and place. Uh, it was the night before the big Federico Fellini premiere of his last movie at the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art, Ginger and Fred. It was uh, 1986, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that party was very pivotal. It was a very pivotal night in New York nightlife. It certainly was a social triumph for you. And it put me and Lisa on the map socially because so much press came out of it. I want to ask you what you remember about the night. And I want to chime in because there are just so many funky details. Oh, my God. I love that you're starting there. Yes. I love that. That's so great. Because that was one of the pivotal nights of my life in New York nightlife as well. Yeah. And I really felt like, you know, like, wow, I have really arrived. Um, I'm here I am with my idol, my, to my if there's anyone that I love more than anyone as a filmmaker, it's Federico Fellini. Yes. I mean, all of his movies had people like us in them. He was famous yes. for just yes. casting freaks. And yeah. this was our chance to be part of the Fellini story if we could just get to him. If we could just have five minutes alone with him, we could become Fellini stars. Well, Funny you should say that because Dinah Prince, who who put the whole thing together. Daily Nightlife columnist. She was the Daily News Nightlife columnist. Uh, she came over to me and she said, Mr. Fellini would like to meet you. And she tapped me on the shoulder. I was, you know, I was like, really? 
I was like, oh my God. I mean, I was hoping that I would get to meet him and I was dolled up. I was- Are you, honey, you have never been more glamorous in your life that night. I was I was living my Fellini, like La Dolce Vita, like eight and a half. You were Anita Eckberg. You were- you oh, were Julian of the Spirits. I was like all that and more. And it was a culmination of everything that I felt like I had worked for as being this ultimate glamorous, like, sex pot. <laughs> so she brings you over to Fellini and... So she taps me on the shoulder and I, I might have been talking to you. I don't know. I, I You were close by, I remember. And, and it was really packed. And unfortunately, it was in the Trump Tower, the party, after the after party. Which, but at the time, we didn't really, I mean, it was we, it was pink marble when there were waterfalls. And we just, yeah, uptown, yeah. downtown, we thought it was fabulous. We didn't know any better. Yeah. So she taps me on the shoulder, Tish, come with me, come with me right now. And I was like, okay. So she comes and she walks me over to the, the seated area where he was sitting behind her. There was a velvet rope. I remember. And he's sitting there with Julieta. She's sitting by his side. And everything started to feel like it was in slow motion. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm in, I'm standing in line and she comes to get me and I'm snaking through like a few people ahead of me. And she goes, Mr. Fellini, this is Tish Gervais and blah, blah, blah. And she's, and he stands up. And he looks me up, up and down, and he says, Mi amore, you know, come to Roma. You look at me, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to be a Fellini star. star. It's happening. And then it didn't. When the movie ends, it was it was playing at the Museum of Modern Art, and as you walk out, it was the most glamorous thing I have ever seen because there was a pink carpet going down 53rd Street that we all walked nah. with Fellini, and it was Diane Brill, Anita Sarko, John Sex, Alexis Delago, Lisa E., yeah. Patrick McMullen, Annie Flanders, Stephen Say, and Every single one of us was done to the T because we all wanted to be in a Fellini movie. And then they had roped off Fifth Avenue and there was a pink carpet walking us up Fifth Avenue. And we were just this circuit parade of circus freaks walking up Fifth Avenue on a pink carpet with the paparazzi going bananas. Just- I was right behind you. I was right. Yes. I was. We were like hot on your heels. It was me and you and and Lisa and Diane. And Diane Brill, yes. And then we get into the Trump Tower and they ask for a photo of us with Fellini. Now, yeah, uh, this is this is this is where I, I'm going to not name names, but I'm going to tell a story because everybody <laughs> like like barnacles to a hull, they attach themselves to Fellini. And I yeah. am standing there and it is Diane, it is Anita, it is you, it is Lisa, all very beautiful women all wearing wonderful, sexy outfits with decolletage and their bosoms pushed up. And I'm standing in front, and all of a sudden, I get a shove, and one of them whispers in my ear, you're blocking my cleavage. And one, of the, I fu- one of the people you just mentioned? 
you one of those people that I just mentioned pushed me to the ground saying I was blocking their cleavage and I am on the ground splayed out and the cameras start going and I have to start voguing on the ground to try and get into the picture again. So all these pictures you see in Vanity Fair, Daily News, New York Post, I mean, they were everywhere. They're everywhere. I am lying on the ground with a leg in the air and an arm because one of you pushed me on the ground to get out of the way because I was blocking their view of, of, Brian, of their cleavage. It wasn't you, was it? And it wasn't me. Uh, I will never say it. But this is a matter of historical record, you know. We need to know. Sometimes I find that a James's version of events doesn't necessarily uh, jive with other people's vi- Are you telling me this whole series is nothing but my delusions? (laughs) Anyway, Brian, tell us more about your life and that night. Hold on. But the one thing that I I learned from the book, because you start off with that story, is that the night before you were in Atlantic City with a gangster uh, to get crack money and you were smoking crack and I had no idea. I mean, I knew that you had a, a, a crack problem later on. I didn't realize that, it, that that was in the middle of it. How was it that you managed to pull yourself out of that and turn yourself into Tish the Glamour Goddess when and 24 hours before you were sucking on the glass dick in Atlantic City with a gangster? Well, nothing could have kept me away from that premiere. I mean, I, I had that invitation. I was, you know, I, I rallied somehow to, to make it there. And, um, you know, during the whole photo thing, when that was happening, my spaghetti strap broke and my boob popped out. Of course. Lovely. And the photographers went crazy. And Stephen Sabin wrote in details about that moment. He said they were, they were screaming at Fellini. Fellini, Mr. Fellini, look up, look up, look up. And he goes, look up? I prefer to look down. He's looking down at my boobs. <laughs> it was the original. It was the Janet Jackson nip slip before it time. Yes, it was the it was first the, nip slip, yes. celebrity nip slip. Well, it wasn't my first one, but it was first one, <laughs> but it was one of many, probably a more infamous one um, <laughs> at the time. You arrived in New York City in 1974. Yes, 74. Yes. And you were working at a thrift store and you had taken the name Natalia, right? Right. And um, tell me just a little bit about, I guess, New York City in 1974 was post-Stonewall and there was a heady mix of of gay pride in the air and the West Village must have just been bananas. Tell me a little bit about your first experiences. It was incredible because, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of the really great clubs were starting to open up back then. There was the uh, the Bonsoir on 8th Street. What is the Bonsoir? I have never heard of the Bonsoir before. I'm going to have to take away your gay card. (laughs) (laughs) The Bonsoir was a little 
little, it was a tiny little club on A Street, right down, not too far from the electric lady recording studio. And you would go down the stairs and there was a little postage size, like dance floor and a little stage. It was in the basement. And Barbara Streisand, Woody Allen, Joan Rivers, oh. all got their start there. Carol oh, King. Wow. So it was it was a cabaret performance type place. Yeah, yeah, but it was also a little like dance club. It was gay, but it was gay. Yeah, yes, gay, 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 and uh, and so that was right right down the street from where I lived. So that was a frequent spot that I went to. And then across the street was another disco called Up the Down Staircase. Oh, I've never heard of that either. Yes, and the staircase was you, you, you could you know was all windows, so you could see people running up and down the stairs in different levels. There was a dance floor level, and there was a lounge, and you could you know you could literally see people going up and up the down staircase. It was really kind of cool, and then and then then the original limelight was over on Seventh Avenue. Well, I've never heard of this either. There was another limelight before limelight. Yes, there was a limelight on 7th Avenue near, uh, there was a restaurant called Penny Feathers on the on the corner of 7th Avenue and like Christopher Street there. And um, I think Circle in the Squ- Circle Rep, the theater company, ended up taking over the space much later on. But that was a disco right there on 7th Avenue South, right, right around the corner from The Monster. And um, and they didn't let you couldn't if you were a woman or a trans woman or a drag queen you were not getting in. Oh, it's sort of like the old Anvil or Mindshaft. You had to fight. You had to beg them to let you in. And I remember eventually they started letting you know women in and trans women and you know drag queens in. But for the longest time it was only men. So when you moved to New York. You, you were, your gender journey had begun prior to that or right when you got to New York? Well, I had already, I had started, you know, up until that point, my friend and I were pretty much doing drag in Rhode Island and running around with the RISD Uh kids and, you know, going to a great disco there in Providence, Rhode Island, the gallery, uh, which was the first big, uh, gay disco in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, so we would do, uh, you know, I was doing drag and, you know, I, I I hadn't transitioned, so to speak. Like I hadn't like started hormones and, you know, uh, other like interventions. But when I got to New York, we sold all our stuff and we decided, okay, let's just try to be gay. And so that lasted for a very short amount of time. And then I ended up, you know, hooking up with another trans woman who introduced me to the whole uh, New York transgender scene, which is at the GG, uh, the Gilded Grape. We're going to talk a lot about the Gilded Grape in a second. So the answer to your question is that there was a, a, a pause for about nine months. And then eventually, eventually uh, I started, you know, taking hormones and I started, you know, transitioning again. And uh, I always loved knowing, just hearing what it was that drew someone to New York, what made them think they had to go to New York. And I'm Brian, I'd love to know what made you think you had to go to New York because 
that really is the story of Night Fever, isn't it? That all these people yeah. end up coming from somewhere else. And it's like, I'm just curious what it was like for you. Yeah, yeah well, I couldn't wait to get out of Rhode Island. During the time, it was pretty, pretty Republican and very homophobic and... Of course, you know, as I've written in my book, you know, there were some really, you know, unpleasant experiences, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, bullying and, you know, abuse and terrible things happened there. And so when my friend, my best friend at the time, Paul Bricker, you know, we he finished beauty school and then uh, he thought it like, he's like, I got to get out of here. It's like, we're going to go to New York and we're going to you know, we're going to become famous and, you know, I'm going to do hair and makeup. And I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to get the hell out of Rhode Island. And, you know, if he thought it was a good idea, I I went along with it. So I, I came with him to New York. And of course, I was struggling with my own, you know, uh, gender, you know, uh, uh, questions. And so that became like the thing that I came to New York to do was to transition. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, you know, I was always interested in acting and singing and, uh, you know, I knew I couldn't do that in Rhode Island. And when I got to New York, I found all these mentors and where did I find them? In the nightclubs. I found them all. Patasa de Lafayette. Patasa. Patasa is such an interesting person because you, you hear lots of stories about her in, in Studio 54. She was a, a trans woman, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous model, um, one of Antonio's girls, which we're going to talk about later. But she had a tendency. She was a mop queen, and she wore nothing but couture, and she would go to Henri Bendel's and Bergdorf's, and she was famous for just walking up to the Chanel counter and grabbing what she wanted, putting it in her bag as she talked to the sales girl. She was just, and it was one of those, like, these are not the drones you are looking for. She hypnotized everybody because she just was doing it. So out in the open, she managed to get these Dior and Yves Saint Laurent and Chanel outfits just by walking in and grabbing them because she was so beautiful and nobody would ever think to, to say anything to her. Yeah, and they used to break the windows on Fifth Avenue late at night. It, like that scene in Pose, that's, that's based you on Patasha, yeah, where she would break the windows, yeah. Yeah. Now we get to go to the reason I've wanted you here, because I am obsessed with The Gilded Grape. The stories of the Gilded Grape. It, it was a club, it was for mostly trans, trans women and drag queens in, on 8th Avenue, right? Yeah. What was it before, James? In those, like you, wasn't it? Mul- hasn't it been multiple things? Well, it was the Peppermint Lounge oh. originally, I think, and then it became Gigi Barnum's afterwards. No. Well, the original Gilded Grape was on Eighth Avenue and Forty Fifth Street, underneath the Camelot apartment buildings, and that apartment building and that that building where the the club was is still there. Eventually, the GG Bar- the, the Gilded Grape moved up the street to where the uh, Peppermint Lounge. Oh, okay, was. okay. And then that became the GG Knickerbocker, and then it then it became the GG Barnum Room. And that's where the flying trans women trapeze artists 
It was owned by the Gambino family, right? Some Italian family. I'm not sure which one, but... And this is this is where you made your, your coins. This is you went uh, very often, and you said that it was because uh, it, it was a, a lot of working girls were, went there because it was easier than than being on the streets, right? Well, it was a little bit safer. I lived up the street. I lived on 49th Street between Eighth uh, and Ninth Avenue. I paid a hundred dollars a month rent. <laughs> I had a flat, a railroad flat. And uh, I lived at the Gilda Grape the entire time I was in at that period, because there were several periods where I was in New York and then I wasn't in New York. And so at that point, I lived at the Gilda Grape. I mean, in fact, they had a buffet, like they knew the girls were going to come and work. So they had a free buffet. You could go in and have a meal (laughs) if you bought a drink. You could get dinner and then turn a trick make some money, and then disco dance for the... Where did the trick turning happen? In the Gilded Grape? Was it at the club, in the bathrooms, or did you take... No, 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 no. no. There were lots of, like, you know, hotels you could go and get for, like, five bucks, ten bucks, and, you know, you know, take a shower and change if you needed to after you did your business. But um, it was right across the street, you know, sometimes. Oh, there was above the Gilded Grape. It was like a trans, like, apartment building. There were many trans women lived in the apartments above the Gilded Grape. This is a sitcom. I am telling you, this is, this is, uh, this is HBO sitcom. I'll write it. <laughs> yeah. We'll write it, you and I, James. Right. Uh, and the Gilded Grape. And down the street, around the corner, down the street, there was another trans uh, apartment building called the Hildana Court. And everybody lived there. It was like $35 a week, 40 bucks a week. You'd get like a studio apartment. And many, many years later, Tish lived there. <laughs> many years later. I remember just recently you posted something on your Instagram uh, and it was a picture of uh, like the Miss Gilded Great pageant or something. And you were just a slip of a girl. You were so beautiful. And I remember you saying in your book that uh, a lot of the other seasoned women there did not like you because you were young and new and fresh. Oh, yeah, it was very it was very competitive when it came to that stuff. There was always a younger, newer, prettier girl coming up. And uh, in fact, you know, there were there were lots of antics that happened. There was lots of husband stealing. Like, God forbid, if you slept with some other girl's husband and she found out about it, they were knocked down, drag out fights (laughs) in the club. And, and, you know, there was that element. And then there was, you know, there was a DJ, there were drag shows, you know, uh, trans women doing lip syncs, you know, so. The script just writes itself, basically. Lip syncing trans women have been around for decades and decades. I'm just curious. So I'm sure you had some really great friends from that time. Are any of that, are you still friendly with some of the girls from that time? I am friendly with one girl from that time on Facebook and a couple of others 
you know, most of them are dead, unfortunately. Probably not many of them survived the 70s and 80s. Not many of them survived AIDS. Yeah. Um, and, you know, drug overdose. Liz Eden was a friend of mine from Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, I used to buy my drugs from her. Um, another friend of yours from uh, from the Gilded Grape was Jimmy Eichelberg. Oh, Ethel Eichelberger. Yeah, Jimmy Eichelberg. He was a friend of mine from the Providence Gallery District. Little Jimmy who grew up to be Ethel. Yes, Providence, Rhode Island. He was at, at the Trinity Square Repertory Company as an actor. So you knew Ethel Eichelberger before Ethel? Yes. Oh, wow. And Andre Leon Talley. Oh, from, he was from Rhode Island too, wasn't he? Yes. 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 yes, there's a funny story about him in my book. Tell us. He said, oh, I came in, I was dressed in a red and white striped halter top with red and white pink high-waisted polka dot pants, flip bell-bottom pants, and a big red velvet 30s hat with pink and uh, red and white polka dot uh, earrings and gigantic goody two-shoes, like three, four-inch platform shoes. It was one of my first times in drag. And he was there with all the RISD kids. He went to Brown and they all hung out at the same place. And he saw me and in that voice, you know, that he has, oh, darling, <laughs> you are turning it out, you know, like, you know. And I was like, turning it out? What the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, but, but he said, you look like you stepped out of a 40s glamour movie, darling. And uh, we became friends and I would often run into him you know, when I moved to New York and always had a fun time with him. Stephen Klein was another of huh? the Rhode Island. Stephen keeps coming uh, up time and time again in these stories. The Gilded Grape famously is where Andy Warhol sent Bob Colicello to get the drag queens for his, and the trans women for his gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen series. Yeah, I and, saw them there. Yeah, oh, okay. Marsha P. Johnson would go there as well, right? Did you know Marsha? I, I knew Marsha, but she, I don't remember seeing her at the Gilded Grape. She was mostly in the village. Okay. Um, and Greenwich Village, there were other trans bars like Peter Rabbit's and like other like local uh, trans hangouts. There was one on where the old I Continental that, Divide yeah. used to be on 2nd Avenue. That was another, I want to say, it wasn't Jacques. I can't remember the name of it right now. Mm. But uh, she was mostly in the village. But a lot of a lot of those girls, like Potassa, would come to the Gilded Grape, and that's where I met Crisis International Crisis. Oh. I met her at the Gilded Grape when she was performing at the Blue Angel. She did this striptease in this beautiful, big feathered Las Vegas sort of outfit. It was very classy, supper club, you know. But in her famous line was, I am 34, 24, 34, 8. Yes. Or I think, I think, I think it was 9. 9. <laughs> I don't remember how big she was. Um, before we move on from the Gilder Grape, though, uh, there was a scruffy young uh, uh, bouncer who looked like Marlon Brando, and he would take care of all the girls. And who was that scruffy young bouncer? Mickey Rourke. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating that Mickey Rourke was to, would take care of yeah. all the girls and he was. Yeah. 
He was like 20. He might have been like 19 or 20 years old. He was. That's our takeaway. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful having Good you. Good night, everybody. Good night and thank you. <laughs> um, uh, let me see. After the Gilded Grape, you worked at the 220 Club, uh, which was an after hours club? Yes. <laughs> Stormy DeLavallee was the coat check person. And she and I were very good friends. Stormy was from Stonewall. Stonewall, right. She threw the first brick, is what they say. Allegedly. Um, And and she also um, was a male impersonator and worked at the Club 82 at the Jewel Box Review. Yeah. On, on East 4th Street. Which is the oldest drag club in the city, yes. Yeah, yes. It yes. was still around, and it was in After Hours, I remember, in the 80s, and it was... Yeah, yeah they made a rock and roll After Hours out of it. Yeah, it was, it was a wild place. But Stormy was, uh, she was sort of the, she was sort of the coat check person, but also, if anyone, you know, fucked with you, you went to her and she would just toss them right out on their ass. I mean, she was a tough, tough woman. And uh, I, I never forget when I, when I became Miss 220. Okay. I, I, won, I won the crown <laughs> and uh, wore it for a year. And as part of my duties, I had to go around to the different clubs and represent the 220. And I'd go to shows and, you know, and they'd send over a bottle of champagne. It was like a political a political, uh, you know, thing. And it gave you a lot of clout in the club scene. It gave me a lot of clout, yeah. yeah. Miss yeah. 220, yeah. here she comes. <laughs> and I have I have pictures of me from the from the 220. My my photo was on the wall uh-huh. with a big, you know, ribbon saying Miss 220, 1977. And uh, I attended bar there. Was this a trans place? Was it a hustler place? Was it after hours? What was it? It was mostly trans. Mm-hmm. It was another trans-centric, uh, you know. There were gay people, you know, drag queens, you know. There was everybody. But for the most part, it was a trans bar. Uh, another mob, you know. Uh, you know, the cops would knock on the door. I'd have to jump over the bar and run into the freezer with the, with the, with the cash box. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And they had a little stage and we did shows and we lip synced. And um, one night I was in there many, many years. This is in the getting ahead of, you know, when it was page six. It turned into page six. And I was upstairs on the second floor. And this very famous actor uh, came, uh, sidled up to me with his friend, Robert De Niro, and he was chatting me up and like, oh, hi. And, and his friend was like, oh, this is Joey. Joey would like to meet you. And so we were chatting. And then I think, I don't know what happened. Nothing, nothing, nothing for, went further than, you know, hi, how are you? And, you know, you know, I kind of resembled his wife at the time, Diane Abbott. I was a big, busty brunette with long, curly hair. So, you know, but maybe he thought I was... Um, cisgender not transgender so that put the kibosh on that um during this time you there was um you had a heroin problem oh yeah yeah that was around that time in the seven well in the 70s yeah um yeah my boyfriend was a bouncer at the 220 
and and he was a heroin addict, and that's how I got addicted. Uh, once I started going out with him, how did you overcome that? You know, we left New York. We decided to leave New York and move back to Rhode Island. We moved in with my mother, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, we bought some street uh, street methadone. Thought that that was going to be the solution. Um, it wasn't. It ended up, you know, being, it was like putting a Band-Aid on a more serious, like, you know, gash. And uh, it, eventually things, you know, resorted back to, he started using again. Um, you know, I, I wrote about this too in my book about how, you know, he, he almost killed me, strangled me. He was like, we had such a big knockdown drag drag out fight. He was like strangling me, choking me. I was like turning blue, and finally uh, I was able to get get away from him and got him pushed him down the stairs and locked the door behind him. But you know, yeah, it didn't end well that one. I almost ran him over with my car. Wow, um, this was at your mom's house. No, this was at a little apartment down the street from my mother in Rhode Island where we had lived. And when you almost ran him over, were you intending to run him over? Or was it accidental? Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. <laughs> yes. Toxic, toxic couples when they get together. Toxic, dysfunctional, yeah. crazy, drug-addled. How long were you using heroin? Not that long, um, but, you know, my, my drug history goes way back into, uh, at the age of 14. I was just telling James earlier that I'm 35 years sober. And did you ever think you could get to 35 years at, like, at the depths of, of addiction? I never thought I could get to 35 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Gabriel Rotello was one of the people. And Gabriel says to say hello, by the way. I'm seeing him, we love him. on Saturday. Um, and uh, he was one of the people that was, was instrumental in getting me some help back in the 80s. I'm so naive. I had no idea you were battling any kind of addiction issues. Well, we're going to get to the crack addiction later in the 80s because that's when things oh, yeah. really get crazy. And there are some interesting stories about that. But I want to you're, you're in um, uh, Rhode Island and then you come back to New York and it is uh, you go to Haraz and there was a party for Thelma Houston. Don't leave me this way. And that's oh where you meet Antonio Lopez. The great illustrator, yeah. and it, um, everybody is at this party yeah. Halston and Warhol and Capote, Margot Hemingway. Oh, Margot Hemingway, and uh, Truman Capote, and um, uh, Antonio spies you across the bar. And what happens? So, I was there with my friend Paul Bricker, who, whose picture is over my shoulder here on the left. I was there with him and uh, with Stephen Klein, the photographer, and Jane Spielberg, not of the Spielberg family, his girlfriend at the time. Paul had made me this amazing, he was also a designer, and he made me this like Saint Laurent knockoff of the fantasy look with the big puffy mutton sleeves and the tight, tight, tied bodice and the taffeta ruffled skirt. 
And he and I were dancing wildly. And I had this like French can-can skirt on, going crazy, sniffing toppers <laughs> and spinning around to don't leave me this way. And uh, Antonia went to Stephen like, who is that mad woman? I must meet her. And uh, I went over and he introduced himself to me and he gave me his card. He said, you must come to my studio. I want to draw you. I wasn't even 20 years old. Then there were then uh, that day that I went to the studio for him to draw me, uh, Grace Jones was there. And I got to meet Grace and uh, and and Victor Hugo stopped by. Oh, what was he like? As as everyone would expect, he was kind of like over the top, kind of like overly sexual, uh, very, uh, uh, what's the word, Um, big personality. Um, And he came in uh, with, I I don't remember who he was with, but, you know, we were doing a photo shoot that day and I sat down with Grace and it was right at the time when her first big hit came out, which was, uh, you know. That's the trouble. Okay. Um, okay. Came out and uh, yeah, it was really something. It was a very exciting time to be alive. It, when you're one of Antonio's girls, um, he sends you to Studio Fifty Four for opening night. <laughs> <laughs> See, I know, I know, you're, I know all of this more than you do. <laughs> oh my God! I mean, talk about like, yeah. I mean, I'm just a kid too. It's like. He sends me over to meet, uh, what's her name? Uh, Carmen D'Alessio. D'Alessio, right. So I, and I knock on the door. It's like in the middle of the afternoon. And again, I lived right across. I lived like on 49th Street. And I come in in my little jeans and my little top. And I'm knocking on the door. And I'm like, is Carmen here? And they're like, who the hell are you? Like, Carmen who? And like, you know, I guess being young and not really being intimidated by celebrity or power or anything it's like i said i guess it worked well for me <laughs> they, they let me in and i sat down in the middle of all of this construction and all of this craziness going on and i kept saying where's carmen is carmen here do you know where carmen is who is carmen and eventually you know she came by and like who are you like what do you want like why are you here and i was like oh antonio had sent me to be one of the girls descending on the swings and opening oh wow yeah because of my voluptuous you know showgirl figure and she's like oh it's too late it's too late we did that we we're done with that but you were there opening night I did get, yeah, I did go. I did go opening night. And and we went around. Everybody was in the front, but we heard that they were letting people in the back on 53rd Street. So we went around to the back entrance. And every time the, the security guard would open the door, people would try to push their way in. And at one point, they pushed so hard that they knocked him out of the way. And we all just <laughs> pushed our way in. No list for me, honey. We just pushed our way in, and uh, and it was it was quite exciting. Then now we get back to uh, Gigi Barnum's, which is you where where the gilded with what the gilded grape turned into, and that's the one. Remember, you guys, Randy and Fenton, that Rudolph was talking about how they had the the net 
and the tra- drag queen trapeze artists would go and the wigs would be flying off and everyone would be falling and everyone would applaud every time they fell. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. did you go to, were you were you a Gigi Barnum fan? Did you go? Oh, I was there all the time. It was my whole life was bars. I mean, you know, back then it was a safe haven for, you know, not only gay people, but there was such a a strong sense of community amongst trans women back then because we were all we had. You know, we were our own, you know, I didn't have the language for it back then, but we we were our own best advocates. You know, I learned everything I needed to from these women. And in the back of my book, there's a list of 50 trans women from Mm. that time period uh, that I thank in my acknowledgments. Yes, in the back of that book. And, you know, so many of them, you know, even to this day, probably don't even know. uh, I mean, a lot of them are probably not here. Um, but so many of them were mentors to me in such such an amazing way because I was a little you know young kid from Rhode Island with you know wet behind the ears and you know kind of naive. I see just the listing in your it's like Nikki, Holly, you know Candy, Pinky, Carol, Marlene, Colette, Monique, Lola, Kim, Paige, and it's these women who yeah probably yeah, this is yeah. this is you know you they live on if you remember them, but so many of them. Did yeah. not have, you know, family or anyone. Monique and, and Wilhelmina, they're in the book. They, they were in the Andy Warhol Diaries, the, the you know, the, that series, the drag series that he did. And Wilhelmina lived, she was my neighbor upstairs at the uh, Albert Hotel. Now let's get to uh, Randy and Fenton. I don't know if you remember this, but in 1999, the three of us went to the HBO performance space to see... Uh, uh, Brian, and it was a play that he did called Boys Don't Wear Lipstick, right? And most, and it was, a lot of it was centered on what we're going to talk about now was your experiences as an army wife in Germany. I remember it well. Not being an army wife in Germany, your performance, your show. Which eventually, eventually was produced off Broadway in 2000. Oh, nice. Your husband, Denny, who you met and yeah. sort of tell us about meeting Denny and how that all, how it came about that you ended up in Germany on an army base. You know, and I already had like burnt myself out in New York city with all the, you know, the drugs and the clubs and, you know, went crawling back to Rhode Island to, you know, once again, try to get my act together. I ended up doing very well. I got a GED and I went to college as a trans woman. I started acting in plays and I got a legitimate job uh, through the gov- uh, government program, the CETA program. I was doing teaching arts and crafts as a trans woman in the 70s to like in low income housing. Again, I went to this bar after school, after college with my college friends. And I met this man at this bar, this gay bar called the Mirror Bar. And it was a 70s kind of black lacquered, sleek, mirrors everywhere. The queens loved that because you could cruise through a mirror if you wanted to. And my ex-husband at the time was a doorman at the club. And that's where we met. The rest is history or herstory, as they say. I met him and we were together 
for a little while. And then one day he came home and he had trouble keeping jobs. And um, he said to me, he had enlisted in the army. And I thought, what are you smoking? Like, are you stoned or what, what, what is wrong with you? Like the army, wh- how am I going to fit in that scene? And, you know, luckily for Tish, she had what the kids call passing yeah. privilege. So through my passing privilege, I was able to, you know, we went to this, went to, he, you know, we decided to get married and I went to city hall and, Got a marriage license. I took the, the the blood test. But wait, your marriage license did did it say female on it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So did you have a birth certificate that said female at the time? No. Wow. No. No. When I went to change my name when I was nineteen years old at City Hall, I went to change my name and I handed in the paperwork. It cha- changed my name from Brian Belovich to Natalia Bello. I shortened Vich. And uh, the woman handed the woman the papers. She looked at it, filled out the form, and wrote F on the paperwork and handed it back to me. And then I got a female driver's license. But when you do the blood test, doesn't that... I was worried about that, but it doesn't, it doesn't detect gender. And so you were able to get a passport is as a female in a time when that probably you were probably, I mean, that was sort of unheard of, isn't it? I'm probably one of the first other gendered marriage. I mean, I know Liz Eden had a marriage, but it wasn't legal. But yours was yours. I mean, it was legal. Legal. Like, yeah. And I, I don't know if I told you guys this before, but there's another case from the 40s, Lucy Hicks. She was a trans woman in the 40s, and she married a sailor, and she became a madam. And they found out they, there was a syphilis outbreak in her, in her uh, brothel, and they came in to test everybody, and they found out that she was not fem- assigned female at birth. And she got arrested and spent time in jail it's a felony. Well, I'm thinking that, that she must have been one of the f- very, I mean, was that before Christine Jorgensen or is... Before Christine Jorgensen. This is in the 40s. That's another documentary right there, too. Wow. Yes. I've, yes. We're getting lots of ideas yes. here. 10%. <laughs> so you moved to Germany and you're on the army base and is does it go well? Are you, are you an army wife? Are you enjoying life? Oh my God, it, it's to think about it today, it's like it's like an otherworldly experience. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, I mean, I'm horrified that I had the balls <laughs> to like not only get a fake pa- I mean my passport, I had the passport, I had the I had a military ID. I mean, there are great scenes, uh, stories that I tell about it in the book. I mean, there's a lot. I, I got. A, I had a lot of fun to say, to, to be honest. But some of the things that I did were terrifying, and I didn't. I was so stoned all the time. I didn't really realize, like, how terrifying it really could have been. Like, I could have been like that soldier's wife. You know that yeah. movie with you know yeah. Jane Fonda's son. Soldier girl. Soldier's girl. Yeah. 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 It has echoes of what Soldier's Girls was that Calpurnia? Yeah. 
Calpurnia yeah. Adams. Yes, he was the boyfriend was killed in yeah. the barracks by the by the guys when they found out he was dating a trans woman. So, you know, the guys were after me all the time. You know what I looked like. I know, sure. And you, you had just had your you just had your best done too, right? You, yeah, I would come out of the library and, you know, and the guys would be across the way from me. They'd be screaming, you know, whistling and, hey, baby, hey, mama, hey, sex. And you're just vamping like Jane Mansfield here. You're just. And I was like, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Niagara clicking along, you know, like my little heels, like not looking back because I didn't want to look like a whore. <laughs> but it also sort of sounds a little bit like Hedwig. I mean, there's a little Hedwig in here, too. Oh, girl, don't get me started with that. <laughs> do you think that he, do you think he, he knows? Do you think John Cameron Mitchell? Oh, girl, allegedly, he knew a lot. <laughs> Wait, what, what do you mean? That he stole this, the plot from you. Well, he, he denies it. He denies even knowing who I am. But there has been, you know, people... Uh, when I did my play at the Ridiculous Theater Company, my stage manager said that he had attended the theater uh, production. Uh, and it was around the same time that he was doing Hedvig. Um, also, his producer came many times to see my show when it was at the uh, Ridiculous Theater in the Village and chatted me up after the show and... Uh, so it's not like they don't know who I am, but they make like they don't know who I am. And they, in interviews, they say, oh, I don't even know who that person is. But, you know, um, yeah, that, that it, it's there's lots of different takes on it. You know, when it came out, people would come running up to me. Is that your story? You know, how did they get your story? Like, and I would be like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. For the, the first version of Hedvig, she was a prostitute living in a trailer park, and she was a cisgender woman. Okay. Um, well, okay. So. How did that relationship, did, you know, how long did you stay there, and how, did, how and why did you leave? So we traveled the world. We went to Germany. We lived in Washington. That's another episode in my illustrious adventures life. We lived out in Fort Lewis in Washington state and we ended our, he ended his uh, military service. We moved back to New York, to Brooklyn, New York in Park Slope way before it was, you know, as chic and expensive as it is now. And I started to get back into, back into what I really wanted to do, which was acting and singing and modeling. I was, went back with, went back and did work with Antonio again and and uh, my husband was very jealous and possessive, and he wanted me to sort of live along these sort of heteronormative, like, you're the wife, you stay home and cook and clean and shop. And, you know, I was never that girl. So it didn't end well. We had a very bad breakup. He went his way. I went my way. And then... Um, Funny story, many years later, I had to find out when I remarried, when marriage equality became legal, if I was a bigamist because I wanted to marry my current husband. But before I did that, we had to find out if my other marriage was still on the books. 
and it was annulled. So he had it annulled. That's interesting. Have you ever heard from him again or have you ever? When we did the documentary, I wanted to contact him to let him know that we, I was doing this documentary and that it wasn't going to be a secret. Like, it wasn't going to be like a secret, you know, like if Elizabeth Taylor can talk about all her ex-husbands, why couldn't I? You know, that's my thinking. And uh, so I, I, we, we found him. I won't say where he is, but, and we approached him to be a part of the, my producer approached him to be part of the documentary and he declined. Um, but we had a great conversation. And I was able to actually, you know, one of the things you do as a person in recovery is you make amends. And so I was able to make amends in some way for some of the awful things that I did um, to him back then. So when you get back to New York, and this is during the limelight danceateria area era, you become great friends with Michael Musto and Gabriel Rotello. And Gabriel has you do the Downtown Dukes and Divas. Yes. I met Gabriel at Nelson's house, Nelson Sullivan. Oh, nice. I think it was New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. And I met Gabriel and Nelson had come to videotape a little cabaret show that I was doing at the theater in the village. And Nelson was going on and on about, oh, Tish, you've got to see Tish's show. And she's the fabulous new thing. And, and, you know, Gabriel was like, you know, oh, well, if Nelson says that you are this fabulous thing, you must. It's like the Fellini thing that I talked about earlier. You must come and be in my show. You know, you're so fabulous. Blah, blah. So then I would, there I was in Gabriel's loft on, you know, 10th Avenue, rehearsing with actual musicians and singing in my real voice, which not many trans women other than Jane County um, or Holly would do back in the day. Um, and yeah, and then that's how you know, the whole New York City nightlife chapter began with Tish and uh, the girl was something extra. I remember meeting you uh, probably through Andy Anderson, I'm thinking maybe, or it, maybe it was Michael Musto. But um, I mean, you, you, you were so beautiful and so um, had such a overwhelming persona. I, I did not know for six months or uh, probably a year that you were the first trans person that I'd ever met. Yes, I thought you were called the girl with something extra because because you just were just stacked up here. Right? <laughs> you had an extra personality. <laughs> and um, I think Randy and I must have, uh, Randy, maybe, uh, didn't we meet in Gabriel's loft? Was that where we met, Tish? I think that's where we met as well, yeah. Yeah, I think so. You were there that night. Um, I think so. Yeah. I remember you guys wanting me to sing one of your songs. Holly. Mm. Yeah, well, you had the good sense to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always thought to myself, gee, if I only had it together enough yeah. to, like, follow through with things, maybe life would be so different now. Who knows? But, but then you wouldn't have the fun stories for your book. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like you had it together you definitely seem to totally i mean that's a funny thing like i i i, I never would have never had any idea well never. that brings me to 
I had no idea that during this period there was a crack problem and the crack problem I and I know that I, I know you're in recovery and you're helping people now and, and I to, for me to harp on this it it feels um, but it is interesting because you you overcome these things that's yeah. why I, I want to talk yeah. about them but there is one thing one story where Michael Musto is performing on stage and he's calling, he's introducing Tish Gervais. Welcome to the stage, Tish Gervais. And nothing. <laughs> Once again, welcome to the stage, Tish Gervais. And this goes on and on and on. And Tish is not, the audience is applauding. And where are you, Brian Belovich? <laughs> well, you know, you know the landscape of that club. So up behind the altar behind the stained glass window were the bathrooms. So Miss Tish was in the bathroom stall, the last one on the right, scraping her pipe and getting one last hit before she ran out. As you are being introduced and the audience is applauding. I'm saying to myself, yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll be there. And I'm... You cannot get off the pipe. That is the thing no. about crack is that it 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 is yeah. as bad as everyone bad. says. It is just terrifying that at, at some you know at a, at a certain point you just end up in your home looking for helicopters out the window and trying to get money together for the next hit, and that's your entire yeah. life, yeah. and that's what happened to you. Yes, and and um. And Michael was furious at me. He didn't speak to me for weeks and weeks and weeks. He was so, so upset with me. I am sure. Um, and then I went, I eventually made an appearance and it's on video. Nelson videotaped it. It's, it's a Duke and Diva show. I'm Tisha's in a black spandex kind of, you know, 80s Madonna outfit with this big sort of like, you know, Loretta Lynn hair. And... <laughs> And I got out there and put something out there. I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, eventually I got there. The the crack thing you went, you know, I know you 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 took money from the theater you were working at, and someone the one of the people at the theater eventually said, "Okay, we can't have this anymore. You need help." How was it that you got the help, and how did you get off the crack? Well, the thing about you know, people who struggle with addiction is there is, you know, that moment of reckoning when you, you know, you can try as hard as you can to help anyone, but unless they're willing and ready to get the help, it's not going to happen. And so I was fortunate enough to be in the care of this woman, this amazing woman who was my mentor uh, one of my mentors, Edith O'Hara, who was this kind of tough, older Irish uh, woman from the mid Midwest, um, who really cared for me, genuinely cared for me. And up until that point in my life, I never felt that anyone really gave a shit about me. And so when she approached me or confronted me in a very loving way, another thing that was had never happened to me in my life, um, I was open to hearing, you know, what she had to say. And it was at a moment 
a low point. You know, they talk about the bottom. It was definitely my bottom because there was I was going to go even further down the drain after that if I had not, you know, accepted, you know, the help that she was offering me. And so, you know, since that day back in November 1986, I have not had to, you know, I got help through 12-step programs and counseling and doing all of the things that are suggested for people in recovery and uh, really started to turn my life around. And we spend a lot of time talking about Tisha's life, but Brian's life has been, uh, I was telling James before uh, we started that in, uh, in a few weeks, I'll be graduating uh, from Hunter College with a master's degree in mental health counseling. And I've been working with trans kids and uh, uh, gay kids. I run the Gender and Sexuality Alliance at a school in in Jackson Heights, Queens, with a Latin, you know, popula- population. Um, and it's, you know, I get to do this amazing work today. So it's like the third and final act. You know, I'm no spring chicken. But it's the third and final act of this, like, incredible art of my life. I think you're a five-act kind of person. You think there's a couple more left? (laughs) I wouldn't say third and final. I'd say... Let's not count you out yet. Exactly. We need to talk about retransitioning um, to to Brian. Uh, When did that happen? And... I remember there was an article in details that Musto did. There was an interview with you around the time that that happened. Um, Can you just sort of walk us through where you were mentally that you decided to transition and how it how it works? I spent a year in recovery, went into therapy. And, you know, another thing that they suggest for people with a history of addiction or mental health problems is that you get therapy and you get some kind of support. And they also ask us to look at the reasons why you did the things you did. And so when I really took a deep deep dive into looking at the reasons why I did a lot of the things I did, I found out like, oh my God, these were not really good choices that I was making. And it's a lot more complicated than that. I don't want to sound like, you know, Pat or make it sound that simple. I mean, it was very, it was as complicated a decision as it is for people that have to transition in the first place. So I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I just decided to change and that was it. It was, it was a culmination of, you know, many different things, you know, uh, HIV amongst them, because back then... (laughs) If you were a trans woman trying to get some kind of HIV treatment, good luck, sister, because that wasn't happening. So then you think of your your mortality and like, oh, well, how do I want to go out of the world? Do I want to go out of the world this way? You know, I'm very practical. I've always been a very practical sort of down-to-earth person, which a lot of people don't really think of me as. But, you know, it was survival. You know, I went into survival mode and had to do the best thing to uh, not only ensure my continuing recovery, but also my own authenticity and happiness uh, in choosing 
you know, how I really wanted to live my life going forward. Is there a community out there of, of people who have retransitioned? Is there, are there support groups? Are there, do you, are there other, do you know other people who have gone through your experience? Yes. Actually, there are many people who get to the point where they don't go quite as far as I did. I know some people who have. I know some people who have had gender uh, affirming surgery that have changed their mind about things. So if you go on YouTube or just Google these topics, there's a community of people for sure. I actually, I had an interview. This is my second interview today. I did an interview this morning for Psychology Today about this very topic. Part of the interview, they wanted to know what my thoughts were on this topic. And what I, what I think about it is that, you know, people, parents, any parent, you know, should just love their children and support them in the choices and who they are as human beings, even little ones. And the world would be a much better place if we put away our projection of what we think our children should be based on history, based on standards of, you know, the whole pink-blue thing. Boys should wear blue and girls should wear pink and, you know, and just blow up the gender uh, binary and just accept people. We would be so much happier. There would be so much more joy and so much more love in the world if, if we just accepted. We're not there yet, but, you know, I'm hoping that I can continue doing the work that I've been doing around, you know, this issue and and make room um, and provide space for people for whatever gender expression they're interested in exploring. Did you find when you first retransitioned that there were friends who did not accept it or were having trouble with it? Because it, 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 it's sort of a little mind-blowing, I imagine, to one day, I, I remember running into you at Wigstock, I was just telling you, and um, and this is sort of funny, a little side piece, you were with Albert Crudeau, and Albert was wearing a necklace of Nelson's teeth. Do you remember this? <laughs> He had Nelson's teeth after he died and he made a necklace out of it. And I remember seeing you and you had said that you were retransitioning, but that you were also doing a drag act named Gin with Ginger Snaps. And you were so you were sort of keeping a foot in both worlds. And it, it was it, it was it was just sort of like I remember going home and just being like, what? What, what was that conversation? Oh, yeah. People really freaked out. You have to think yeah. of the time. It was 1986, 80. Yeah. I started retransitioning in 87, 88, late 87. So my friends, and, you know, it probably would have been a lot easier for me if I was a brick. You know, if I looked, if I looked a little hard, you know, if I looked a little bit like Lady Bunny, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or if I looked, you know, if I looked, you know, like, you know, masculine or, you know, like. But, but Tish was so fully realized. It was such an exotic creature that people had a hard time wrapping their heads around like, what going on? I mean, look, I mean, you know, there she is up there. <laughs> um, so it was hard for people and, uh, you know, hard for me. <laughs> mm. You know? <laughs> All eyes turned to Tish. 
hard to compete with Tish in a room. You know, it doesn't matter how sort of fabulous Brian is. It's, you know, Tish, Tish was. Tish is overwhelming. She's, she's a, yeah, she's an icon. Do you, have you made uh, peace with Tish and do you look back on with, do you, you, you look back with, on her with love, right? Oh, well, my friend Tony Zanetta, who was a Warhol, you know, old Warhol person, um, came to the screening of our documentary and he said as he was sitting there watching the film that he realized that Tish was a vessel, that Tish held space for Brian, that Tish kept me alive in order to live the life that I'm living today. And it was such, it was like she was this angel that came down and huh. and and it was just such a beauty. I know I could weep. I mean, it's a very moving yeah. image that, you know, that she, you know, mm. kept me going, you know, long enough to figure it out. Because we're all figuring something out. But I love that that idea. There, it, there was something of an angel about you. You were always so lovely and so nice. Yeah. Like as as Tish. I'm not saying, by the way, that Brian is not. I. But, <laughs> no, you are. Just your energy back then and now has always been has always been really sweet. And I had no idea of your of your drug problem. Like, it's so weird because I think also Fen and I were so, our experience with nightclub, like we would be home in bed at 1130 every night. You you guys were business business models. Yeah, we would not like you were like you were like counting the counting the coins, honey. You were, <laughs> I said, these two, these two are going places. I said, but well, I, I just feel so naive because so many people, so many of our friends and like, I, Fenton, do you remember like when we would discover like, like, I don't know, a lot of people at the pyramid were doing heroin and I. Oh, I have a funny story. Randy went downstairs. We lived on 65 East 9th Street and Randy went downstairs. Um, what was his name? Mark, I think his name was Mark and lived with George. Michael, Michael Ford. Michael Ford, could he lived with a runway. Michael Ford, that's it. So Randy goes into their apartment to borrow a cup of sugar or something and sees like blood and hypodermics and like comes running upstairs passes out on the floor, just like cold. Like I'm like <laughs> slapping him. <laughs> I passed out because also like <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. But but yeah. I had A, I had no idea. And uh, and you know, people were living these other lives past not other lives, their lives, but we were like, you know, and you just seem like a lovely woman to me. Well, that's the thing, you know, people don't really realize there's a whole other, you know, there's a whole other three-dimensional thing yeah. going on. And Tish right. was a great actress. Oh, you know, she could act. Yes. But, you know, what, what, something RuPaul's always said, if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. Yeah. And you, were, you weren't just an actress. It wasn't an, you were real. Yeah. And I think that that is sometimes like, sometimes, you know, Drag is dragon and and trans identity. It's not performing a part, is it? It's not a role. It's actually 
a different manifestation. Yeah. And so it, there's nothing fake in it. You know, it's not like... So you you and I that, that's why the the angel thing just touched me so much because it really there was such a sweetness to you um, and there is of course today but it was thank you and it was just unexpected you know you were this hot gorgeous bombshell and really lovely you know it wasn't it, you know unlike oh don't know James you know. <laughs> but, uh, Whatever. I know. This is sort of a full circle moment here because when we first started talking, we were talking about the um, premiere of the Ginger and Fred, the Fellini movie, Mm -hmm. and you started the book talking about how you were in New, uh, you were in Atlantic City the night before (laughs) with a gangster, and you were, you know, smoking crack and everything, and then you went straight to the premiere, and I had no, no one had any clue because that was a huge social triumph for you but but your backstory the the day before was you know crazy Mm. and tragic and scary and and but but you pulled it off and we had no idea that 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 was going on in your life well that was just one example i mean i was that was my life in general i was you know i had a sugar daddy you know i was working for an escort service and i was still doing the whole tish Gervais, you know, club celebrity girl, girly boy thing. And, you know, so like you were you were juggling, you had many balls in the air. It was it was it was it was ultimately destined to collapse. Yeah. Because there were too many balls, no pun intended, up in the air. You know, I was I was trying, you know, there were so many different identities I was trying to juggle. That eventually, you know, no one, I, I, I'm, I don't think anybody else could succeed at that. But I was very compartmentalized in a lot of ways. Um, even with the, with the addiction, a lot of addicts have that in common. They're able to yeah. compartmentalize their addiction and keep a job, you know, put up a great front, you know, uh, you know um, but eventually it all came, the chickens came home to roost. Well, I want to thank you so much. The the book is Transfigured. The the documentary is I'm going to make you love me. There's a, a screenplay that you're working on right now to turn it into a movie. And I like Fenton said, I think we've got two or three more acts left to go here. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being such such wonderful friends all these many years. Mm. Just some genuine, some real genuine uh, people came out of that whole experience. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, that there are just, just, you know, the, there's, a, there's a Spanish word for it. I forget that it's. It's called duende, and we all have that duende. Mm. You know, we all have this sort of, like, thing within us that we gravitate towards the light. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. Um, To be alive and live. There you go. We lived. We love you very much. 